Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses, uh, really just verse 29, but I'm going to start reading in verse 25. But uh, concentrating simply on one verse this morning, Ephesians 4, 29. Uh, A guy named Francis Schaeffer wrote a book back in 1970 called The Mark of the Christian. And he sought to answer this question. What what is it that identifies a true Christian? And he said it's not really the acknowledgement of any particular doctrinal content. It's not that we are very active in giving to the poor. It's not that we hold to a particular political persuasion, as, as important as those things are. Schaefer's answer to this question, what is the mark of a, of a Christian, is this. The mark of a real Christian is one who loves other Christians. And so Schaefer says this, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Now, if you're familiar with the book of John, you will know that this is very biblical. This is what Jesus said, right? How will the world know that you are my disciples if you love one another? Jesus says. And so Schaefer says this statement, which is rather startling actually, and he clarifies it by saying, he says, I'm not saying that if this mark is not in your life that that means you're not a Christian. So that's not what I'm saying. He says, what I'm really saying is that in this statement in John 13 where Jesus says that people will know we are disciples by our love, what Jesus is doing is giving a right to the world to make an evaluation, a judgment on us as to whether we are really Christians. And the thing that the world is looking for and the thing that the world is longing to see is that we are a community of people who love one another. Now, how is it that we can see this love? How can this love be observed? He says, observable love toward all Christians. And I want to suggest to you today that the way our love for other Christians is observed is primarily, significantly, in the words that we speak, in the way we talk, in what we say to one another, and what we say about one another, in what we say behind the backs of one another. The reason is because what we say reveals who we are. Isn't that true? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you hold other Christians in the church of Jesus Christ in contempt, if you have disdain for your brothers and sisters in Christ, it will come out in your words. And if you love other Christians, brothers and sisters, and you have affection for the church, that also will come out in your words. The reason we're talking about this today is because we're going through a sermon series called Life Together. We're learning how we as a church, a changing church and a changing community, 
uh, can live together in a way that honors God. This is the third sermon in the series. We began a few weeks ago talking about the importance of church membership. It's been very encouraging to see a large number of people in the membership class here lately. Uh, Last week, as Adam said, we talked about the importance of spiritual gifts, that every Christian is gifted and should be seeking to use his or her gift in service to the church. Next Sunday, we'll take a little break from this series. Uh, It's Reformation Sunday next week. We're going to celebrate this great event in history where we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ was recovered. And we have a man named Dr. Alan Strange from Mid-America Reform Seminary who will be here preaching to us on that occasion. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, We'll resume this series the week after that. But today we're talking primarily about the use of our words, our speech, and the way it reflects who we are and the way we relate to one another. This is very important, very relevant uh, in this day and age because we have maybe more opportunities than any other to use our words. We've got email now, we've got texting, we've got Facebook, and now we have Voxer even. You can use your words in a number of ways to and about other people. And really, we all have two options. We can use our words to build others up, or we can use our words to tear others down. And both of these options are contained for us here in this passage in Ephesians 4.29. Let me give you just a little background here. The book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, you know, wonderful chapter that explains the way we used to be. Uh, Before we became Christians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air. And then this phrase shows up in Ephesians 2.4, maybe the most important phrase in the whole Bible, just two little words, but God. But God. But God did something for us and in his mercy and his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God that no one should boast. And so this wonderful description of the gospel is given to us in Ephesians 2. The book continues on, and when we get to chapter 4, what Paul starts talking about is the unity of the church. The unity of the body of believers. So very appropriate for our sermon series, Life Together. And what Paul does is he goes on to command us to put off the old self, to put off our former way of life, and to put on our new self, a new way of life that reflects the fact that we have been saved by grace and loved by God. And starting in verse 25 then, Paul begins to unpack the implications of what it is to put on this new self. We've put off the old, we've put on the new, And now he begins in verse 25, and that's what I'm going to read for you now. So if you'd please stand. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 25. Okay, you've put on the new self, therefore, by the way, I have the passage on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, here's our verse, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Lord, give grace to us who hear and listen to your word as it goes forth now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two things here we're going to consider, these options that we have before us about how we can use our words. First option is this. You can use your words to tear down. It's an option. Something you can do with the way you speak to others. You can tear people down. There's something about words, isn't there, that is uniquely powerful. Uh, Others have commented on this. This is Rudyard Kipling. He says, words are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. Aldous Huxley, another writer, words can be like x-rays. If you use them properly, they'll go through anything. The Bible, of course, affirms the power of words, in particular the power of God's words. Psalm 33 says it was by God's word that the heavens were made, that God spoke his word and the entire universe came into existence. It was through God's speech, through God's word. And God has in his mercy given to you and me this gift, this gift of speech. This is part of what it is to be made in God's image. This is one of the ways that we reflect our creator. God speaks And so do we. This is one of the things that sets us apart from the animals. And cows moo, and dogs bark, and pigs grunt, and lions roar, but human beings speak. We articulate words and ideas, and we express them. And this centrality of the word is highlighted in the passage you've already seen here in our call to worship, this this amazing teaching of the incarnation where in John chapter 1 we see that it was in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then the Word came into our world, took on flesh and lived among us and walked on this earth. That's a description of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the Word. Christianity places a very, very high premium on words so much so that Jesus himself is described as a living word in the flesh. The word is a big deal. So it shouldn't surprise us then in verse 29 that Paul is concerned about how we use our words and how we speak to one another and how we address one another. So he says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This word for corrupting basically means rotten. <laughs> Same word is used in Matthew chapter 13, verse 48. Paul, or Jesus is giving a, a parable of catching fish in a net, and he says if someone catches fish, what they'll do is they'll take the good fish and they'll put them over here, and they'll take the bad fish and put them over here. And it's the same word that's used here for corrupting. But what Paul has in mind here are words that are like stinky, rotten fish. Or maybe you've had a basket of fruit or a bag of fruit and you look down looking for uh, a fruit and you know, you're, you're feeling your oranges and peaches and then you get to that one that's it's kind of mushy and you pick it up and it's discolored and there's insects crawling on the inside of it and as soon as you pull it out it just stinks. 
That's the idea Paul is giving us of the kind of talk that tears people down. Rotten talk. I don't think he's talking just about vulgar talk. I don't think he's talking just about profanity. I don't think he's talking about necessarily just you know, sexual innuendos and the kinds of things we hear in movies and on TV a lot, although that might be included here. Remember, the context here is the body of Christ, the way Christians relate to one another. What he's got in mind most of all is the way we tend to tear one another down in the way we speak to them or speak about them. James chapter 3. Here's where we get this really a chilling description of the power of words. He says, look at the ships, James says. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member of our bodies, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I remember when I started driving, when I was 16 years old, my dad would give me a warning. He would say, Bobby, that's what he called me, Bobby. Bobby, when you take this car, you need to remember that what you're driving is a lethal weapon. And friends, when you open your mouth, you are using words which could potentially be a lethal weapon. You know, we hear sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie, isn't it? Being called names, having words that have been used to tear you down, hurts a lot. Some of you have been verbally abused, and you're still wrestling with the fallout of the hurt and the pain that you've had to endure, hearing words over and over again that were intended to tear you down. Well, how does this happen? What does it look like? These, the ways that we speak to the, the corrupting talk that, that Paul has in mind here. What are some different forms that it might take? How does speech tear down? Well, one way is just through our reckless words. And sometimes we, we just say things and we don't think about what we're saying. And then we kind of use an excuse like, well, I'm just letting off steam. Or, you know, I'm just a person who tells it like it is. I, I've just got to be honest, we say. And we use that as an excuse to just say whatever we want. Very often we're not saying things to deliberately hurt somebody, but we don't make much of an effort not to hurt in the words that we use. Here's Proverbs, says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words are like sword thrusts, and they tear people down. Complaining is another way our words tear down. This is particularly convicting for me as one who likes to complain. You know, complaining 
just brings a negative, sour cast to everything, doesn't it? We can affect people, hurt people, discourage people. We don't even necessarily direct our comments to people, but we're always complaining about things, and it brings people down. Philippians 2.14 says very clearly, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without complaining. Another way our speech tears down is through falsehoods, lies, deceit. This can take more subtle forms. Sometimes we just we exaggerate things. We twist facts. We hide certain facts. We present stories, accounts in a way that makes us look good and it's advantageous to our case. What does it say back in verse 25? Doesn't Paul say very clearly here, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Falsehoods, lies, deceit are a way to tear down. And of course, criticism. Criticism is a way we can use our words to tear people down. Now, of course, sometimes criticism is, is necessary. Parents have to correct children. Teachers have to correct students. Bosses have to correct employees. So we're not saying here the Bible wouldn't condone this idea that we should never challenge, admonish, or correct or rebuke anybody. But we should remember, again, thinking about the power of words, the most powerful drug given to mankind, words like x-rays. If you think about words in that way, you have to realize, friends, that critical words weigh a lot more than affirmations. Critical words, corrections, they're, they're heavy. It takes a lot of praise, a lot of affirmation to make up for corrections and criticisms. It, it takes a little bit of time, just a small amount of time, to wound somebody with a word. But it takes a lot of time for people to heal from those wounds. And it's like, you know, you see a big bouquet of flowers and it's just beautiful. All these flowers, all these colors, and you're looking at all the different kind of flowers and you put your face in there and you're sniffing it and you get stung by a bee. And when you back up, what are you thinking about? You're not thinking about the beautiful bouquet of flowers. You're thinking about the bee sting. The next time you see that bouquet of flowers, what are you thinking? What a beautiful bouquet of flowers. No, you're thinking that's the bouquet from which I was stung by a bee. That's what sticks with you. And that's the way critical, admonishing words are. There's a proper time, friends, for criticism and correction. But I guess the way to put this in perspective is just to ask this. Among your friends, among your family, what is the reputation that you have? Remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4? He earned a nickname because of the way he was, the way he used his words. And his nickname was Son of Encouragement. What would be your nickname? Mrs. Nitpicky? Mr. Whiner and Complainer? There's a proper place for admonishing words, but our praise, our affirmation should outweigh our admonishment. Friends, how is it that you use your words? Do you use them recklessly? Are you a complainer? Are you a liar? Are your words full of criticism? That's a sure way to tear people down. But there is another option for how 
we can relate our words. You can tear people down. You can also use your words to build people up. And that's what Paul says in the second half of verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but here's the kind of talk that should come out of your mouths. Only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Those are the kinds of words that should be spoken in Christian families and in Christian churches. Only such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion. That's interesting, isn't it? That Paul is saying that we need to be sensitive to the person that we're speaking to, the occasion, the situation. Um, again, avoiding the reckless words. Um, building people up requires thought and attention to the people we're talking to. What, what is their situation? Are they, are they sick or are they well? Are they unemployed or do they have a job? Are they single or are they married? Are they a Christian or not a Christian? All these things should play into your mind as you think about how to praise and affirm people and encourage people. Speak in a way that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, listen, as Christians, we are uniquely equipped and gifted to encourage people. Of all the people on the earth, we ought to be the people who are the most encouraging because living inside of us is the spirit of encouragement, the spirit of comfort. We have on our lips or on our pockets or in our cell phones, we have the words of eternal life. We have the promises of God at our disposal to say to people. We know that there is forgiveness for those who trust Christ. We know that there is life after death. We know that it's possible to be transformed, to be made new. We know that it's possible to leave our guilt and shame behind and to be made right with God and to enjoy eternal life right now. We know these things. We've been given these things and we can declare these things. We're Christians. We've been given much to use to encourage others, to give grace to others. Friends, I mean, just think about this. I mean, I just want to make a promise to you here today. I, mean, I don't know how your relationships are with others in this church right now, or in your family, with your children, with your spouse, with your co-workers, with your roommates. I don't know what they're like, but if there's tension, if there's difficulty, if you are separated from people right now, I'm going to make a guarantee to you you learn to be an encourager. You learn to be one who affirms others, who builds others up, as Paul says here, as fits the occasion to give grace to those who hear. You work that into your life, and I guarantee you, your relationship will get better. It will get better. You learn to speak words of life, words of hope, words of praise to others, and they are going to be drawn into your corner. I'm not saying everything's fixed. I'm not saying every problem is left behind. But Paul is giving us a very, very useful and practical application here. Now, some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute. We, I, you know, we shouldn't really praise people too much. We shouldn't compliment people too much. I mean, we're supposed to glorify God. If we praise people too much, we might be too man-centered. We might be taking praise away from God and praising people too much. So, you know, that's why I don't really praise. I just want to give glory to God. I don't want to, you know, exalt people too much. Well, I mean, look in the Bible over and over again. You know, there's really lots of examples in the Bible of people being affirmed. Proverbs 31, the godly virtuous woman. 
It's just a big chapter that just affirms this wonderful, hardworking, godly woman. And it says that her children and her husband, they wake up in the morning and they praise her. They compliment her. They affirm her. Proverbs 31. How about Paul? Paul in Romans 16 talks about Phoebe, who's this wonderful servant. She's been helpful to many, Paul says. Paul affirms her, compliments her, praises her. He talks about about Timothy and says, there's no one like Timothy. There's no one who has a deep concern for the churches like him. Paul goes on record writing scripture and affirms and compliments and praises Timothy. Jesus, the same way, the Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7 shows this faith. And Jesus says, you know what? I have never seen faith like this. Centurion. What great faith you have. The widow who put her two coins uh, into the the pot. And Jesus says, this woman is given everything that she has. He compliments her. He praises her. It's biblical to praise people. It's biblical to affirm and to compliment. If you want to know better how to do this, there's this uh, really good book called Practicing Affirmation by a guy named Sam Crabtree. We actually have copies available on the book table. I would recommend this to you. It's, you see, not very long but very helpful, very practical. And this guy, Sam Crabtree, actually makes the point that it's a sin not to praise where praise is due. He says this, God is not given the praise he deserves when we ignore or deny the work he is doing in people. Because anything good that's going on in a person, anything godly, anything worthy of commendation is from God anyway. When you praise, compliment, affirm somebody, you are giving glory to God because their gifts ultimately come from Him. How do we affirm? How do we do this well? Uh, I'm going to refer to Crabtree here. He gives some, some good suggestions here. Ways to affirm, compliment, praise people well. First of all, our affirmation should be detached from correction. That is, you don't use an affirmation or a compliment as a way to smuggle in an admonishment. You know, you've heard this, if you have a criticism, you sandwich it with praise. You've heard that probably, and I've said that. And, you know, generally speaking, I think it's, it's, it's useful, you know. You, you give somebody a compliment, then you bring up the criticism, and then you finish with the compliment. You sandwich the criticism With praise, it does make the criticism a little easier to receive unless you're doing that all the time. And then when you offer up an affirmation, what the person is thinking is, okay, when's the criticism coming? Okay, I know he's saying that to butter me up and manipulate me to get me ready to hear this other critical remark. Learn to give affirmations that are detached from correction, that don't have admonishments on the heels of the praise. Admonish, uh, affirmation should be spoken regularly. Spoke, but both those words are very important. They should be spoken, and they should be spoken regularly. Sometimes I hear from men things like, you know, I don't really compliment, I don't really tell my wife I love her that much, but, but she knows. She knows. Don't assume, men, that your wives know. Affirmations must be spoken, they must be articulated. Passive silence does not equal an affirmation. 
Crabtree says this, affirmation goes beyond passive acceptance to a steady diet of active approval, not aiming only for minimal correction, but earnest commendation. Good affirmations are spoken and they occur regularly. Affirmations should be honest. You should speak what is, what is true. Um, the temptation could be that you're scrambling and you're making things up about a person and just saying things to try to encourage. You know, don't do that. That's going to backfire on you eventually, and the person is going to sense that these things are not true. But this goes back to what Paul is saying here, that we should build others up as fits the occasion that we need to be thoughtful, we need to be attentive, so that what we're saying is actually true and actually fits the person that we're talking to. We're not just making things up here. Proverbs 12 says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. A lie is not gonna stick with the person. They're gonna know it's a lie, and ultimately, it won't affirm. And then lastly, a good affirmation is God-centered. It's God-centered. Think about affirmations that would reflect a person's growth and grace, a person's godliness as a Christian. I mean, you know, you're really good at that video game. Your hair looks really nice. Those are, those are good affirmations. Those are good compliments. But, you know, maybe we could do a little better than that. How about, you know, I've really noticed that you seem to be growing in your knowledge of God's Word. I, I, I really appreciate your generosity. Uh, I've noticed that over the last year, there is a marked, significant growth in godliness in your life. That's God-centered affirmation. That goes a long way and also sends the message that that's the kind of thing that we ought to be continuing to pursue. God-centered affirmation. Some other examples uh, of how we can affirm people, compliment people. I mean, maybe for some it's, it's kind of obvious that you can show appreciation for what you appreciate about a person in your life. But let me suggest this. You know, there are a lot of people in this church who do a lot of volunteer work. Um, they put in a lot of hours. I mean, if you're looking for an idea about how to affirm, how about writing a card or going to one of the volunteers in this church, and just thanking them for their service. That's a a suggestion for you as you think about who to compliment, who to affirm. You can go to somebody and just say, you know what, I want you to know that I have been praying for you. Of course, don't say that if it's not true. So pray for the person and then go and tell them, I just want you to know that I've been praying for you. Do you know how encouraging that is to hear that? I hear that from people, and it lifts my spirits. It's a simple thing. It's so easy. I mean, that's the thing about affirmation and encouragement. It's so easy. <laughs> so why is it that we're just not inclined to do it? Tell people you're praying for them. Go to someone and ask them for, ask him, her, for his or her advice. Hey, I've been thinking through something, and I want your counsel. Take the counsel. If it's good counsel, implement it, and then go back and say, I just want you to know, I did what you said, and it worked out really well. That's a really good way to affirm. How about this? Praising people in the presence of others, not just privately. Spouse is a good way to build up your spouse. Say something good about your spouse when others can hear, but as fits the occasion. 
You want to pay attention to who's there? Maybe your wife, husband doesn't like the attention? Be sensitive to that. It's got to fit the occasion. But generally praising people in public is a good thing. How about this? One last suggestion. Going to someone and saying, I want to be like you. What an affirmation. What a bit of encouragement. I got to say, this is an encouraging congregation. Um, I was just blessed recently by a number of cards and gifts um, on the occasion of my 10-year anniversary here uh, at New Life. And so uh, I feel very encouraged, very blessed uh, by all of you and your affirmations to me. So thank you for that. There's someone once said, if you flatter me, I might not believe you. Criticize me, I might not like you. Ignore me, I might not forgive you, but encourage me, and I won't forget you. Is there somebody in your life who needs encouragement? Son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a roommate, a friend. Some of you I know are longing for encouragement. You just want to hear uplifting words. You want encouragement. You've been hearing corrupting talk all of your life. I just want to encourage you today, as we conclude here, that even if you don't hear those encouraging words from others, friends, there are encouraging words for you in the gospel, in the Bible. What God says is this, He has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for the discouraged. And he's also sent his son to die for those who can't control their tongue and who are full of criticism and who lie and complain. That Jesus died for those kinds of people. And there is a word that comes to us in the Bible, and it just simply says this, that if you trust in Jesus... You are pronounced not guilty before his law. And the righteousness of his son is imputed to you through faith alone. If that describes you, the encouragement there is that a word has come from the heavens. A word has come from our creator. A word of blessing for sinners in the gospel. And as you trust, as you believe in what Jesus has done, you devote yourself to follow him. You'll also hear one day, your Savior, and your Master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Won't those be sweet words that we will hear from our God one day? Encourage one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for direction from your word. And ask, we ask, Lord God, that you would fill our mouths with words of honor and praise and joy and affirmation that we as a church would be built up in our life together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.